calling on people to think about, wow, I'm, I'm not okay, or I need to stay okay, or how do I consider and work out my mental health? How much of our mental health is related to poverty, access, trauma? Those are many of the things I was trying to highlight. It's not just, oh, I have a chemical imbalance, although that is part of the part of what happens, but there's so many other factors that are part of our stories. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia. Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We also want to give a special shout-out to some of our podcast listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Cindy Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Trump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Reverend Dr. Monica A. Coleman. She is the professor of Africana Studies at the University of Delaware. She's authored numerous books, including Bipolar Faith, A Black Woman's Journey with Depression and Faith. Reverend Dr. Coleman, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you for having me. So at the time of recording this, we are 17 months into this pandemic. Uh, What does the day and the life of a scholar look like right now? A lot of time on the laptop, Um, (laughs) lots of emails, a lot of Zoom meetings. I was using Zoom before the pandemic. We used it a lot at Claremont School of Theology, actually, because we would have outside readers on dissertations, but not as much as we do now, of course. Um, Helping my child (laughs) get onto Zoom, who now can tell everyone how to use Zoom, because I have an elementary age daughter who is home for a little while, although she did get to go back to school last school year um, in person with lots of testing. 
So that is a big part of the day. It's just a lot of time spent online and then having to unplug and shake it off because too much online time makes your eyes wonky and your brain fuzzy. Um, so then I try and do some reading or, you know, keep the household up because when everyone's home, there's more household mess. It's amazing too. Yeah. I think every family like boosted their internet speed during the pandemic. Cause it's like, you know, parents have got to do zoom meetings. Oh, by the way, my kids got to be, you know, on class and they've got to have a great signal. And, um, I don't, I don't know about, you know, in Delaware, but where we are, like if the teacher could not physically see a child on the screen during class time, you know, they considered them to be absent. So, um, just, just crazy, crazy times we find ourselves in. Um, so I know you're a two-time graduate of, of Claremont and uh, a big process theology person. So are you more of a Whitehead uh, or Cobb student? Well, if you ever to do a little uh, genealogy for you, which makes us process nerds happy, um, one of Alfred North Whitehead's students at Harvard, he was Charles Hartshorn, and John Cobb studied with Charles Hartshorn. And Marjorie Suhaki studied with John Cobb, and Marjorie Suhaki was my doctoral and dissertation advisor. So in the lineage, I guess you could say Cobb and Whitehead, right? Because um, even though Cobb went very much leaned towards Hartshorn, and he has a different metaphysics than Cobb than Whitehead, um, later in his career, Cobb made a more Whiteheadian shift. So I do like Whitehead's writings, and especially compared to Cobb's early writings, I prefer Whitehead's writings, but Cobb's later writings, meaning post-1990, I really appreciate his engagement with um, social issues and political issues, and I'm biased because I know Dr. Cobb, and I like him a lot, so I don't think it's an either-or answer. All right, so I'm taking that if you had trading cards, you're going with the Cobb trading card. That's uh, that's the one you're going to go with. All right, so, so for those that maybe don't know what process theology is, uh, can you give us an, an overview? I can. In process theology, we start off with the idea that the most fundamental aspect in the world is change, which is the kind of thing that philosophers have wanted to figure out over time. And we all come up with different answers, right? What is the most fundamental thing? If you stripped everything else away, what could you hold on to? And people in the process tradition say change. If you can count on nothing else, you can count on things changing. And we say that everything changes. Everything always changes. Whether you're a quark or a frog or a rock or a person, everything is always changing. So everything is always in process. Um, you might think about that ninth grade lesson where, ninth grade science lesson, right, where we know that even if something is solid, there's still molecules moving around. So everything is still moving around, even if it feels and looks like a solid to us. Given enough time, it won't always be a solid. Well, the same kind of thing we think is true of everything. And it's not only true of everything in the world, it is also true of God. So we are always changing and God is always changing. So we say, I say it this way, there are three things that make up what happens in the world. Um, our past or what we have to work with, what is possible in our context, and then what we do with it. And for those of us who are process theists, we believe that God is the one that offers us the possibilities, often possibilities we might not have foreseen or possibilities that did not come from the past alone, but that God is the one who offers us those possibilities. And we call that 
the call of God, the lure of God, the love of God, um, many words we have for thinking about the way in which God comes to us in the world. And we still have an agency about what we're going to do with that. And God has a similar process. So God takes in what the world offers to God because God doesn't know what we're going to do until we do it because our agency is genuine. And then God's like, oh, wow, this is what you gave me to work with. Let me see what I can do with that. And God tries to find the best that there is and offers that back to the world. I don't remember which process theologian uh, framed in these terms, but uh, I distinctly remember and, and remember being inspired by this, uh, thinking about it in the sense of God invites us to co-create with God, you know, that, that the world as we know it is not uh, finalized, but we are in the process of creating this new thing um, that's happening, and we we become co-creators with God. Yes, um, many process theologians use language of co-create because we think of ourselves, you might say, in a partnership with God. Of course, God's working with more than we're working with, but we're still in a partnership with God. So how, how does process theology reframe how someone thinks about change and adaptation in life and in the world? Well, one thing is that it's not something to be resisted, which is probably our gut feeling. <laughs> and especially nowadays when we feel so much change and upheaval and there's so much adapting we're doing. And so for those of us in process, it's not a surprise. It might not be comfortable, but it's not a surprise. It's not something to fight against. It's not evil. It just is. And our hope is that we change and adapt and we live in and amidst these things the best way we can, according to the vision that God, that God has for the world, and hopefully that we try to share that God has for the world. Um, Christians have typically called this, you know, the vision of the kingdom of God. So um, as a professor of, of Africana studies, um, how has the national conversation over the last 17 months altered the way that you're educating your students now? Well, I think the main part is that I have more students, right, that more people are interested in the religions and the cultures and the experiences and struggles and joys of persons of African descent than earlier. Um, I have, I teach at a you know, state university, so many of my students are not humanities majors, but when they have to take an elective, they're like, let me go take an elective about Africana studies. And that's true of Black students and non-Black students who want to learn more about persons of African descent and our experiences. So my teaching hasn't changed, but I think my learners have changed. That's fascinating. Yeah, uh, interviewing somebody recently, they were talking about that while progress maybe hasn't advanced in the way they would hope, openness and education around what progress can look like uh, certainly is a broader conversation right now, that more people are aware and awareness creates the opportunity for, for positive change. Um, Definitely. I mean, as an educator, that's what we always hope, right? <laughs> that, yeah. that education can be a real force for positive change. And we've also seen how a lack of education can be a force for stagnation. Yeah. So, so for many professional theologians and philosophers, the act of thinking and writing and talking often does not translate into acting. However, you are both a scholar and an advocate. Why is the intersection of these two practices so important for you? Well, for me, I think it's really natural. 
So before I got a PhD, I was a community organizer. I was full-time clergy, although not with full-time pay, if anyone remembers those days. And, um, you know, when you're active clergy, you're in the community and you're trying to figure out what the needs of the people are that you're working with and how you can best meet those needs and partner with other people and help people to feel empowered about the ways in which they can claim their voice. And so for me, that was, it's a part of who I am and a part of what my life looked like before I started studying for my PhD. So it's always been integrated, I think, into how I see religion and spirituality. And for me, while I love thinking about different parts of religion and religious ideas, the things that really stayed in my heart and the topics of my research came out of those advocacy experiences. It came from hearing the questions that people had about evil, about sin, about why is this happening? What can we do? I don't understand where God is in this. And wanting to provide the best answers I could that would help us all get to freedom. So um, one of the things that um, you're known for, you write about and you speak about often is around uh, mental health. And in 2016, you wrote Bipolar Faith. And this was a personal journey through your family's trauma of mental health and depression and suicide. Five years removed from its release, this book still speaks powerfully to many different audiences. Why do you think it continues to be so impactful? Um, you know, I think it might be a little more impactful now than it was then because people are talking more about mental health. People are talking more about self-care, um, which I think is very much related <laughs> to mental health and trying to maintain one's mental health than people were doing five years ago. And so in that sense, I feel like it might be a little bit more relevant because before I was trying to push the conversation a little bit and I was asking churches to talk about this. And now churches saying, we want to talk about this. Can you help us have that conversation? Um, because I think not only being online for 17 months, um, that uh, the kind of grief, both the national grief and personal grief that people have experienced these last 18 months. I mean, I don't know anyone who doesn't know someone who's had COVID um, to whatever degree that is. Most people I know have lost someone they know or love to COVID at this point. And that doesn't include all the other kinds of grief and loss and sadnesses that we are experiencing individually as families and as a nation in the United States. And even in a global community, there's been so much loss around this pandemic, even as there's awareness. And so that's tough. <laughs> and we haven't been able to enact the ways in which we normally manage grief. And we normally don't manage this much grief at once. And so I think it really is calling on people to think about, wow, I'm, I'm not okay, or I need to stay okay, or how do I consider and work out my mental health? How much of our mental health is related to poverty, access, trauma? Those are many of the things I was trying to highlight in bipolar faith, that it's not just, oh, I have a chemical imbalance, although that is part of the part of what happens. But there's so many other factors that are part of our stories that really make us think about and wrestle with our mental health. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. 
Listen in to a conversation with Robert P. Jones, author of White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity, and Dr. Lewis Brogdon, Executive Director of BSK's Institute for Black Church Studies, entitled America's Racial Reckoning and the Crisis of White Christianity. Visit institute.bsk.edu backslash Jones 2021 for recording of this important conversation starting October 18th. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. In just a second, I'm, I want to unpack some of that um, a bit more in, in, in great detail. Um, but one of the most difficult stories in this book is about your great-grandfather. I wonder if you're willing to share the story and how its legacy uh, impacts your life. Sure. Um, and this story is at the very beginning, and it's a story of my maternal grandmother's father. And when I was growing up, I knew that my grandmother had been orphaned. I knew that her mother had died when the children, and there are seven, eight, nine children, right, number of children, um, they're sharecroppers in South Carolina. I knew that the mother died when the children were very young. And the way my grandmother would say it is, and then my, six months later, my father died of grief. And I was well into my 20s when I found out that what that really meant was that my, grand, my great-grandfather has set up a kind of noose in um, a kind of uh, closet shed part of the house and asked his oldest child to pull out the chair from underneath him, and he hung himself. And I also learned that they didn't take that rope down for many, many years. Um, there are, I have, my mother has first cousins who said, I remember seeing the rope. So that means it was there like 10, 20 years after this happened, maybe even longer than that. And so this was this heaviness that hung over my family and was part of our family story, but I didn't know this. So as I was experiencing fairly severe depressions, I felt very alone in that. And I didn't really know that this was part of a larger history. But I also began to think more, well, wow, who was going to say, do you need some mental health assistance um, to a poor black sharecropper in South Carolina in the early 1900s? That's not language people would have used. <laughs> There's poverty at work. There's a different mindset at work. and I wanted to begin to think more about, well, nobody would be okay given the legacy of war and slavery and poverty and sharecropping. Um, that's not just in my history, but I think is very much an American history in that we shouldn't expect people to be fine and dandy after some of these experiences. 
and that we can be more aware of how our histories shape our lives. And that helps us as we try to move forward in how we're going to not feel so isolated, have family and collective members to talk to about this. Um, in fact, when I published the book, the members at my family, the my family members on my mother's side were like, yes. Like no one was like, this isn't true. We don't know anything about this. They were like, yep, that's part of our story. And but more people talked about it. People weren't talking about it. So more of my generation talked about it. More of my mother's generation would start talking to me about it. And I consider that a win. As you just said, the impact of slavery, of war, of sharecropping, of poverty, of, of alcoholism, of systemic racism, and the impact that had not only on your great grandfather and, and your family, even yourself. You know, for some people who've never experienced mental health struggles or know much about it, it seems like something, you know, they'll just say, well, one can just change their attitude about it and get over it. But talk to us a little bit more about uh, the genetic ancestral impact um, of, of mental health. Well, you know, now we have this wonderful term called epigenetics, right, that talks about the ways in which trauma actually changes our genes, right, lives in our cells, um, this historical trauma. I mean, if people could just change their minds and change their attitudes, they would. And there are many people who try that route. Um, but it's complicated, right? It's the, First of all, it's the brain, which is this complex thing that we don't really know a whole lot about even the best scientists. Um, you break your arm, people generally know how to fix it. If something's happening in your brain, they're like, well, let's look at a whole bunch of different things and try our best. And so the brain is complicated. And so it is this combination of um, chemical imbalances like you might see on those TV commercials <laughs> for um, psychotropic medications and our experiences, and as we now know, our genes and the ways in which trauma happens. And you have to remember for many people that trauma isn't over. And a lot of it has to do with access. Do we have access to tools to deal with our trauma? I think I told a bit of a story in Bipolar Faith about my paternal grandfather and my father who both were alcoholics. And they also had both been in the military. And my grandfather, my grandfather's generation, right, was drafted into World War II. And there's a story in my family about how he started drinking after a particularly traumatic incident happened during the war. And that's the only tool people had to cope, you know, or at least that, that part of my family had to cope. And there are genetic components to that as well because of um, some of the cultural heritage and the ways in my family in which um, Native Americans um, process alcohol or don't process alcohol in the same way as those who are not Native Americans. And so you have all of these things happening, genes and culture and race and poverty and access and trying to cope with trauma. And that acts as if the trauma is over, right? Because, you know, for many African-Americans, racial trauma hasn't ended. We still, this is what the last 17 months have showed us, we're still experiencing a good amount of racial trauma, even if it looks different than it may have 40 years ago or 100 years ago. So, you know, one of the specific angles you write about um, is the Black religious tradition. And I don't, I don't know if this would be a word I would use, but the tension with mental health um, 
and you write about this in the book. Will you take us a little, little deeper there? Yes. I mean, I think I did feel this tension and I think this is partly a black religious tradition thing, but I think it's Christianity because I hear it from people who are not connected to black religion. This idea that we should be grateful, we should be happy Christians, that we're too blessed to be stressed, right? These ideas that um, we can't be honest about our, our difficult, our struggles with mental health in the same way that we are about diabetes, heart disease, surgery, right? The other kinds of things that would easily make it on the prayer list at a church. Um, but just as much as I talked about how trauma hurts us and lives in our genes, what I find very exciting are the ways in which we are able to also heal um, through many of our religious resources, right? That meditation, that dance, that charismatic worship, so many aspects of our traditions also change our brain cells, change our wiring, change our nervous systems um, that not only help us cope, but actually help us to heal from some of those traumas. And I don't think, okay, you meditate, you're good. I think it's a nexus of many of these things, but that scientists are now discovering what religious people have known for a long time about the value of faith and of spiritual practices in our mental wellness. Let's take that relationship with the church, um, you know, a little bit deeper. Mental health and the church have not always been bedfellows, and maybe it's over the spiritualization of real mental health struggles or the lack of vocabulary to talk about the experience. But why do you think the church flounders in talking about mental health, let alone depression and suicide? You know, um, well, let me go to suicide first. <laughs> so um, partly I think we've got some crap theology out there, right? That I'll, I'll say it's crap theology and see who's still listening, right? This idea that suicide is this unforgivable sin right? That every sin is okay, except for the sin of suicide, because then you're trying to be like God and taking over God's role by taking your own life and not letting God make that decision. Even if that's your theology, which I don't think is a good theology. Um, and there's very little about the gospels where Jesus suggests there's every sin's okay, except for, right, <laughs> the ones that we now list out, whether it be suicide or something else. Um, it is a holy unpastoral and loving thing to share with people. Uh, and it definitely comes, I think, from being outside the experience of suicidal ideation, where it's not at all about selfishness or taking over God's role, but trying to get out of a very, very deep pain and seeing no other way out. And we should view that as tragedy and as um, something to mourn, not something to chastise. Um, I think I don't, in one sense, I want to say, I don't know why we haven't been good at this, because biblical scripture gives us a whole lot to work with in terms of what we might now call mental illness, even though that those weren't the languages and the words that um, early Christians used. So there is a kind of selective use of scripture or a way of I think you're right over spiritualizing what is happening when we would clearly now say, oh, this person is struggling with mental health. I think the church struggles with many difficult topics. I don't think mental health is the only one. There are a lot of topics we're just not good at talking about because 
they're hard and they're nuanced and they're complex. And it's very hard to give one message. This is what it is about them. Um, I mean, sexuality would be another one, right? <laughs> there, are, there are many topics that we're not really good at talking about. And I think for mental health, it's, you can't see it the same way you can see other health issues. And I think that makes it harder for people to talk about, but many of us haven't been given a theological view by which to deal with really complex suffering, um, which connects to why I'm a process theologian, right? Because I think that process theology gives us really good views of how to think about suffering and how to live amidst and hopefully the best way we can um, with evil and also with having a beatific vision in the, for the world that we share with God. So what are some practical steps churches can take to boost their awareness and ministry to those facing mental health crisis? Well, one of, I, I would say a couple steps. One is for religious leaders to know the mental re health resources in their community. Um, not just go Googling and make a list, but to actually know um, the individuals and the organizations that provide mental health care because people bring everything to their ministers, right? They bring things to us that are way out of our area of expertise, right? We're, we're very much the holistic listeners for our community. And so I think if you can say, hey, I know someone who might be able to help you, or I know a community or an agency that can help you. And not just here's a number, but I know them. Tell them I sent you. We're friends. Like we know each other. That makes a very big difference right there. I think the other part is to talk about it and pray about it um, while you're on the prayer list and praying for those who have, you know, who are living with COVID, praying for those who are experiencing um, house, you know, houselessness. Also pray for those who are experiencing depression. Um, so many people who live with mental health challenges don't even hear their experiences in church services. It doesn't seem like anyone cares. So even just adding that to the list of things that we pray about and are hoping for um, as something we are praying for the healing of as compared to, well, if you just prayed right, you'd be okay. Like, don't say that. <laughs> that would be another step. And, you know, for those who are religious leaders to preach and teach about it to talk about this in Bible study and to talk about this from the pulpit when you're preaching, that there are plenty of scriptures. You know, you can give me any scripture and I can talk about it somehow, <laughs> but there are plenty of scriptures, I think, that lend itself towards what it means to be community to those who are suffering. And that's what we're striving to do, I think, even around mental health challenges. There's something you said that I would love to um, to unpack a little bit more, you know, I, I hate to break the heart of, you know, any listeners that your pastors aren't perfect and they don't know it all. And I'd, I'd hate to pop the ego of any pastors listening into this that think they're capable of doing anything. But, you know, I don't know if ministers are necessarily equipped to deal with mental health beyond an immediate conversation or listening session, you know, so maybe what are some of the common, um, failures of ministers, uh, whether it's to, uh, as you said, to resource, to point them to somebody who's a clinical psychiatrist or a professional counselor, you know, what are some other things like that, that ministers tend to not see that they should see, um, at least to have a good baseline awareness of mental health struggles? 
Well, I think that's a very big part of it, right? Knowing to refer when something is just way over, right? <laughs> your, your pay grade. And honestly, I felt like, you know, particularly being in full-time ministry, almost everything that came to me was over my pay grade. I was like, I don't know what to do about that. Um, and that, you know, part of being, you know, an educator and we talk with students about is, is not having all the answers, but knowing where to find them, right? Knowing where to find information. And so a big part is, yes, yeah, saying, well, let me look into that. I'll get right back to you. I think it's also to be that compassionate witness, because even as someone may have um, a therapist, may have a psychiatrist and the clinical help they need, they're still a part of our souls, right? So to keep praying for people and to let people know you're praying for them, you can still check in on them, just like you would with someone who had a heart surgery. You're not a surgeon, but you still check in. You still do hospital visits. You still make sure someone brings by a casserole. So I think a, one part of our limitation is thinking, I refer and I'm done. And that's not the case. I think you can refer out and still offer that kind of pastoral care the way that we do in many other arenas. So I think I don't, I don't want to go so far to say, okay, you refer and you're out. Um, but also you can't handle it all, but remembering the part that we can do, remembering the part that we are good at and, um, and using that part while also referring the complex issues to those who are equipped and trained to deal with those complex issues. You know, when it comes to getting you on the podcast and, and thinking through, um, you know, what specific topic to talk to you about. There's so many different things to talk to you about. So, you know, I know we're spending a lot of time here. Maybe the last question on this area, um, what are the best resources out there for faith leaders and churches to tap into in the area of mental health? Um, well, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI, has very good resources under their area they call FaithNet. Um, there's a wonderful group I love working with called Sanctuary Mental Health that also has really, really good resources. Um, they have really good video resources that are, I think, excellent um, and lots of good trainings. Um, those are the first two that come to mind as far as being really strong. Oh, there's also Mental Health Ministries and they have a really excellent monthly newsletter <laughs> that's full of um, good liturgies and good resources and reviews of new books that come out. So I would also recommend Mental Health Ministries. Um, some denominations have ministries dedicated just to this. Um, others do not. Uh, my good friend Sarah Lund has um, two really good books out about mental health and Christianity, so I'd also recommend those. So as I said, you have uh, your hands in a lot of disciplines and studies. Um, what are you working and teaching on right now that we should be aware of? Um, well, what I am working on right now, I thought it would be this week, but you know how everything changes. <laughs> um, I would do a, take more into this. I am working on a book on re Black religious pluralism, and I am looking at the ways in which we think about the ways in which people of different faiths interact with each other and sometimes overlap with each other. So trying to kind of push down those boundaries between you know, they're the Buddhists over here and the Christians over here and the Jewish people over here and the Muslims over there. Um, but how is it that we actually live into the ways in which we cross boundaries? So doing some theorizing around that. All right. So people need to be following your good work. So folks, we recommend that you go to MonicaAColeman.com. You can, of course, uh, follow her on social media. Uh, Reverend Dr. Coleman, thank you for sharing time with us. 
uh, we are incredibly grateful for, for your wisdom and leadership in all the areas that you study and, and lead. Well, thank you for having me. I hope some of your listeners will find me online and, you know, follow or, you know, grab a couple of free resources I have on my website. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.